This is the Speaker for the Living podcast, exploring the depths of human trafficking, forced labor, and all things related. Hello, and welcome back to Speaker for the Living. We're glad to have you. I am your host, Seth Dare. I am here with JJ Janflown. It's good to have you back, JJ. It is good to be back. I am here. I am back. I am returning. Not Maybe not better than ever, but, you know, certainly here. So it is after the inauguration. Oh, is it? It, it no is. One's been, no one's been talking about it. I didn't know. Yeah, I, I get on Facebook and all I see is puppies. <laughs> cats <laughs> just everyone seems very happy no one seems to be upset about this recent turn of events you know what have you um other than that though how, how have you been seth you good i've been okay uh it, it, it's exciting in some in some ways i mean it's not boring and uh it... have my last quarter at corbell and but uh this week or i should say uh in in a couple of days, I'm going to head to Washington D.C. so that we can present uh, my team and I from a countering violent extremism class. We did a web social media project, and we'll be hanging out with a bunch of security people in Washington D.C. this week. That is exciting. It'll be fun. Um, and and it actually kind of posts down to something we've mentioned a few times in this podcast of kind of. The, the difficulty of people who are working at a local level um, in the United States or abroad doing kind of trafficking issues um, at the local level that to actually get things done or, or really funded, you have to go to the federal level. And then a lot of times what that means is actually having to physically get to D.C. for a period of time, you know, and so mm-hmm. that there is sort of this barrier of entry when you're working within the human trafficking field still. Uh, or really any human rights field as well. I think this kind of holds true. So as you probably noticed, the title of the episode today is Thanks Obama! Exclamation point, question mark. So if you really like Obama, you can say Thanks Obama! And if you really don't like Obama, you can do a Thanks Obama! Or, you know, somewhere in the middle, we're equal opportunity here. You can You can hate or love as much as you want, sometimes at the same time. We're all about balance. Um, But what we're kind of trying to do in this particular podcast is we're trying to lay out what policies under the Obama administration, both terms, either helped or hindered human trafficking and and kind of the background for why those policies are. And I think that that's a very good setup, especially moving forward with the U.S. political climate the way it is, to kind of make some predictions, if it's possible, of what human trafficking kind of law and policy in the United States will be now that Obama is no longer our president. So... Hopefully, it's, it's going to be a lot of policy. This is another one, guys, where we're going to be slogging through a lot of very carefully worded press releases from uh, political entities, and you all know how much fun that is. But hopefully, you'll get a lot of good stuff out of it. And that means talking about some policies that are not specifically human trafficking, because things like immigration and labor and et cetera can touch human trafficking. And we also want 
to give some positives and negatives and even some neutral things and say here's here's the evaluation and uh, hopefully that will be informative and helpful to all of you mm -hmm. yep so i'm going to go ahead and start and kind of kick us off here on this whirlwind tour of uh <laughs> of the obama i would guess say um human trafficking sort of policies and what I'm going to start off with is something that if you if you play around at all with sort of any government's statements on human trafficking that you'll notice right away, which is human trafficking is mentioned in a very vague, open way. So it's we're going to prevent trafficking among vulnerable populations. But what those vulnerable populations actually are is not said. We're going to prosecute traffickers through strengthened investigations and enforcement tools but what that, you know, who those law enforcement are and what those tools are going to be isn't stated. Protecting survivors, well, what survivors? Survivors of just anyone under human trafficking, which is labor and sex trafficking, or just one or the other. And then partnering with civil society, state, and local government, the private sector, and faith based organizations. Um, and of these last four points, preventing prosecution, protecting, and partnering, these are all things coming from uh, the Office of the Press Secretary of the White House on April 9, 2016, giving kind of the Obama administration's record on human trafficking issues. And that last one, partnering with civil society, state, and local government, the private sector, and faith-based organizations, is really, really difficult, namely because depending on the civil society, the state, or the local government, there are sort of these nebulous ideas about whether what constitutes human trafficking and slavery and what doesn't. So certainly what we would consider to be exploitative labor in the U.S. is maybe not less labeled as exploitative labor in, say, India. And while both you would think would be held to the same standard and certainly under international law are, when you have someone like the U.S. coming in country to work with these local state government and private actors, you have to understand that there's going to be a very big cultural difference in perception and also how these policies are played out. Um, coming back to that idea, though, about who are these victims, when specifics are given about who is being trafficked or who these services are going to be provided for, who this policy is going to be formed for, it is always, always either child sex trafficking, child labor, or adult women sex trafficking. And I'm actually separating women sex trafficking from child sex trafficking because they really are kind of, you see in these press releases, a third tier. The first concern is children. The sort of third concern is women and men aren't mentioned at all. Um, and child labor um, is kind of shoehorned in along with child sex trafficking as kind of like an aside that we know this also happens and this is offensive. But what we're most concerned with is combating child sex trafficking and then combating adult women sex trafficking. And as Seth and I have pointed out a bunch of times on this podcast, it's not that we're okay <laughs> personally with the idea of child sex trafficking or adult women sex trafficking or say i don't know male sex trafficking which certainly happens um it's not 
that we want funding taken away from these sources. It's not that we want attention taken away from these sources. It's not that we want policy taken away from these victims. What we want is equal attention given to the other people who make up the majority of trafficking victims whose fundamental human dignity is attacked every single day that they're held in bondage. Um, and so what you're getting from a lot of these politicians are statements that are statements that certainly most moral and ethical people would agree with that child sex trafficking is wrong, child labor is wrong, and female sex trafficking of adult women is wrong. No one's going to fight you on those terms. But when you start going into saying, you know, stopping the trafficking of adult men who work in the agricultural industry, you risk kind of uh, making things difficult with your constituents or your funders. And so I want y'all to kind of keep that in mind as Seth and I go through these policies and these services that are provided, that even when we're talking about these services that are given, keep in mind that even if they're good services, they're still only serving a small portion of the population. There are still a lot of people being left out. So leading into the Obama administration on 2008, it was in 2000 that the TVPA, Trafficking Victims Protection Act, was passed. And so the initial trafficking in persons report and initiatives within the State Department were started under the Bush administration. And then uh, the Obama administration and the State Department under Hillary Clinton uh, went and uh, didn't announce a whole lot during uh, Obama's first term. But then in March 2012, uh, President Obama decided to make this a more significant issue. And so he directed his cabinet in March 2012 to redouble their efforts to eliminate human trafficking. And so they came up with a number of initiatives some of them more meaningful than others. Um, so in, in September of 2012, there was the executive order strengthening protections against trafficking in persons of federal in federal contracts, which was implemented a bit later to change the federal acquisition regulations so that they have to tell the government what they're doing if they are a federal contractor. There are a lot of federal contractors, so this has very far-reaching efforts. It does not mandate in reality that they are slave-free so much as they have to be making an effort. Otherwise, they could lose the government contract, have exposure to uh, civil and criminal penalties, mm -hmm. and class action liability. We are not aware of any anything resulting from that, but if a ambitious prosecutor decided to prosecute, there could mm -hmm. be ramifications and it could make a lot more people take notice and vet their supply chains better. And that whole idea too, I think, it's like make that supply chains better. We're going to talk about that later in another podcast where we kind of deal even more with supply chains. But when the U.S. says make supply chains better, 
what they're saying is two entities that have their factories or their position or their agricultural businesses or whatever in the U.S. make those supply chains better. Very rarely is there any teeth attached to these policies that say make your supply chains better overseas um, beyond sort of the rubber stamping of documentation, mm-hmm. which is unfortunate, but it's sort of the issue that we've talked about before when we talk about things that are, you know, labeled free trade. You know, you really kind of have to go, you have to dig beyond the surface of the labeling to see if it's valid or not. And I understand that for a lot of people, this is a really sort of intellectually exhausting exercise. You know, trying to hunt down the supply chain, I always say, if your toothbrush will drive you absolutely crazy. And so what the U.S. is trying to do with this policy is put that responsibility on manufacturers. The problem is, is that when it actually comes down to it, getting manufacturers to do things that are going to cost them more money is very difficult. Also, along with that, following in 2013, there was the End Trafficking in Government Contracting Act that was signed as part of the National Defense Authorization Act, which also increased criminal penalties for contractors. And there were a number of softer provisions that were implemented in 2012. There was the laying the foundation for the President's Interagency Task Force. There was an anti-trafficking toolkit for the U.S. Travel Association. There was a counter-trafficking in persons campus challenge, and other things that uh, you know. We'll share some links that you can take a look at. And then a notable one in 2013 was the Blue Campaign by the Department of Homeland Security. The Blue Campaign included training and uh, there were a number of posters. One one thing we will give them credit for is they actually have posters that show male workers. Yeah. And uh, so props, DHS, uh, for recognizing that uh, male adults are also trafficked. But uh, JJ, you also have something that happened in 2013. Yeah, so in 2013, the Obama administration puts out something called the Strategic Action Plan for Victim Services, which is really exciting because it's the first ever federal strategic action plan to coordinate and strengthen services for trafficking victims in the United States. And that's me quoting directly from their release for public comment. The idea behind this is that it's going to be a five-year plan, so running from 2013 on the way to 2018, that will deal with action-oriented and time-specific victims' services. So victims of trafficking. So these are people who have been labeled victims of trafficking. So they've proven that they're victims of trafficking. They're not just perceived to be victims. Um, Are then granted services through the federal government. And what those services are can range everything from, you know, counseling being provided to, to other sort of subsidies and then also links to other sort of federal sort of safety nets. Um, it's a really good idea, um, and the language is lovely. It's an 84-page report. Um, we will include it in the comments if you are at all interested in, in kind of going through the idea of it. They do start off right away with kind of breaking down what human trafficking is, 
um, the availability of prosecutors to use federal grant funding for services specific to trafficking victims, which means on a local level, the people who are filing these cases um, to be able to move forward. And again, as Seth pointed out, um, kind of the trend that they started is that the images that they do use show a variety of people from a variety of human trafficking circumstances. And there is even a section on um, the LGBTQ population um, in trafficking, which is very rare uh, for that population to even be addressed, let alone to be handled. The issue with this program, as I'm sure no one out there will be shocked to hear, is that it lacked um, and continues uh, to lack funding. Um, it was meant to be working on a very quick timeline. A lot of times victims are left waiting for years for services to come through or for their status to be acknowledged. Um, money makes things go faster. And unfortunately, in this case, um, while it did do a lot of good, the Strategic Action Plan for Victim Services, funding was lacking. Um, and this is something that I think is super interesting is that generally Republican presidents have been really good for the human trafficking field. Yes, um, they provide more funding. I mean, granted that funding is generally going through faith-based initiatives offices, so it's very specific to certain uh, victims and then certain um, organizations that handle those victims that are often tied, generally they're Christian organizations uh, or a, Christian religious organizations abroad. But Republicans do tend to fund anti-human trafficking initiatives a little bit more than Democrats. Um, and so what you see under Obama, I think, is is for the first time really great, well-done academic reports and really clear methodology about what the population is and how these populations should be served. But it ends up falling short because of a lack of funding. Additionally, this was the first time that we have a press release on using technology to fight human trafficking. So looking, as we've mentioned um, into the podcast, that the internet is a beautiful, terrible place. So using looking at the internet and its use, uh, uses in trafficking peoples. But again, it entirely focused on child sex trafficking. Uh, in particular, they actually mentioned the idea of, of young female women sold online, young female children sold online. Um, so it's, it's still this focus on a particular population, and then within that subset of a particular population, it's, it's poorly funded. So unfortunately, while it's great and it's lovely and I wish that I could read it and feel happy on the inside, it's, it's been poorly funded. Right. And if you listened to our episode last week, uh, the End Modern Slavery Initiative Act was just passed in December and signed as part of the National Defense Authorization Act of 2017. Uh, what that ends up doing, it, well, it'll set up a, it's supposed to set up a foundation and the government's supposed to fund uh, seed money of $37 million. We will uh, see how that actually transpires, but that is another way of saying, you know, funding. Yes, it continues to be an issue, and sometimes there's ways that uh, the U.S. tries to contribute to it, but it still ends up being an issue. Uh, yeah, and I think that that's something to always consider 
whether it's coming from a government or a, you know, a company or someone in the private sector, an individual, I'm looking at you, Angelina Jolie, you know, no matter what it's coming from, look to see if what people are saying actually has teeth attached to it. For example, one of the things that I'm, I'm look, looking at sort of early proclamations, as you see in 2012 and 2013, the Obama administration talking about doing, um, like amending the teen on immigrant visa regulations, um, which allows victims to remain in the United States and aid in the prosecution of their traffickers. This is, it was supposed to streamline the process um, and kind of update the T visa regulations in the U.S. so they match the TVPA, which Seth kind of detailed at the beginning of this podcast. The problem is, is that while that was supposed to happen and it kind of happened, just because you change the regulations doesn't mean you change the people who are approved under the new regulations. And so we see that the numbers of people who are approved for T visas are still extremely low and very limited. Right. And again, the T visa is... Oh, okay, sorry. For those of you who are unfamiliar with your visa definitions, the T visa is the non-immigrant status visa, so literally the letter T. And it's set aside specifically for those who have been victims of human trafficking, um, and it protects them, and it allows them to remain in the United States. So let's say, just to give you a, a scenario, I am a Peruvian sheep herder working in Colorado which we will have a podcast on. So shameless self-promotion. But so I am a male, 42 years old, Peruvian sheep herder brought to Colorado to work. And it becomes readily apparent shortly after me landing in Colorado that I have been trafficked. My passport is taken away from me. I am alienated. I'm left out in the cold in the mountains of Colorado with no other human contact. I have no food. I have no water. I am being paid technically uh, a pittance per month but it is not enough to survive on and i have no access to that money and i'm told that if i complain or try to go against the rulings of my employers who have me working 24 hours a day seven days a week um that with no you know and oftentimes no electricity no running water that if i go against them i will just be deported and not be paid at all that is a victim of trafficking so this gentleman um, this Peruvian sheep herder finally gets a hold of law enforcement and says, you know what? This is incorrect. This is wrong. I shouldn't have been treated like this. I want to sue my employer and they should be prosecuted for bringing in me and, you know, let's say 30 other people to work with their livestock. The T visa would then be granted to him so that he can aid in the investigation or prosecution of human trafficking. If he does not want to cooperate with law enforcement, say if he's from a country where law enforcement cannot be trusted, um, or he's been the victim of law enforcement-related crime before, or quite simply he doesn't have the ability to stay in country, then he doesn't get that T visa. So the T visa is tied directly to not only being a victim, but being a victim who is helping in an investigation or in prosecution. If you don't get a T visa, occasionally you can get a U visa. Again, just letter U, which is a non-immigrant status um, visa that provides um, support to crime victims. So if you are not 
uh, let's say that legally they can't prove that you were trafficked, but they can prove that you were the victim of a crime. Maybe they can't make the case in this case that the Peruvian sheep herder was trafficked, but at one point he was beaten up by his um, trafficker slash employer, then he can probably get a U visa. Again, though, that U visa is tied, if you're a victim of crime, to assisting law enforcement authorities. So it is entirely tied to the victim or survivor willingness to participate in the the criminal law process. So this isn't a, um, a, a very easy visa to get, and it's not a easy visa to hold and maintain. Once you have a T visa or U visa, you can try to switch that visa over to kind of do your green card and kind of get positions as, you know, a citizen, or hopefully you can return to your home country or another country for resettlement. But again, these visas, the rates of them getting handed out to people um, or like the approval rate, if you will, is so incredibly low. You know, um, I think it's something like, yeah, that only 5,000 are available per year. And on average, only about 2,000 are issued, pulling that directly from um, the TVPA's section on T visas. So you have a very small percentage of people getting these visas to begin with, let alone, I mean, getting by like applying for these visas to begin with, let alone actually getting them. Um, so again, it's great that the Obama administration sits down and puts on paper, we're going to modify how we do T visas, how you apply for them, how you get them, how people are approved for them. But the proof is in the pudding that when it came down for people to actually start approving people under these visa systems, it didn't happen any differently than it had under the previous, um, Republican administration under Bush. Well, and in talking about visas, that is a good time to bring in immigration, Mm. (laughs) which has been a very muddled and controversial topic during the Obama administration from both the left and the right. Is it still? I seem to have heard something about how it continues to be an issue in the United States. Maybe. A little bit. Right. So there's there's various issues, and uh, among the issues is we have so many people being processed that we and we have to legally give them due process, or we're supposed to give them due process because that's what we do here. That it ends up creating a backlog of even giving people hearings in order to officially deport them, and then we have people in detention, but we only have so much room to detain people. And that's just one part of it. Um, There are the stats that point out that uh, more people were deported under the Obama administration than any previous administration. However, there have also been changes in removals and returns. So return is when you, somebody tries to cross the border and you catch them and you say, leave. I believe that's the understanding. Uh, Versus removals where you... uh, are deporting them after detaining them or bringing them, processing them through ICE. And we have had more people uh, in the last eight years that we catch and then detain in some fashion, turn over to ICE, and then remove, Mm -hmm. which then makes the 
deportation number look a lot higher even though we've returned less people. Uh, I can uh, provide a report to make that a little more clear, but it's another way of saying the numbers, they're there, people have still been deported, there's still things going on, there's disagreements about how we should enforce, about the, you know, there was more interior enforcement and removals within the country earlier in the administration, not so much now. And our concern <laughs> with, with being in the trafficking field is how are people treated? Are they identified properly? Uh, trafficking victims are not always identified properly. So we want to make sure that people are law enforcement, ICE, etc., to have the training and provide the tools so they can say, okay, this person might be a victim, so let's not further traumatize them by by putting them into detention for a long time when actually they were a victim even before they got across the border, as is the case in some in, in some ways. So there yeah, you go. And I, those are those are some topics, JJ. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, no, and I think what those what all of those topics, um, you know, and and what I said before, it's a lot of words, but like mm -hmm. parsing out what those words actually mean mm -hmm. um, is difficult. And what I think, um, and our blog on the on the Super Bowl with Rex Haymaker, um, really kind of accurately dealt with is this this issue that's endemic in, in all human rights fields, but especially in human trafficking fields, of how do we count people, and how do we ensure that they're not doubly counted. Um, so again, it's who counts as who, um, who counts as being someone who was detained as being kind of an, uh, a non-lawful migrant versus who was counted and sent back over the border it's, or was sent to like a third party state who's currently held in detainment. It's all of these things that kind of then make human trafficking statistics all wonky. And in a way, I almost feel like the field will be really improved. <laughs> I'm half and half on it. Uh, I feel like the field could be partially improved if we just got rid of stats. If we mm -hmm. eliminated data from the equation and we just said, look, human trafficking is a thing. We don't know the numbers because the numbers can't be co counted properly right now, but it shouldn't happen, period. So let's make policies and change it. But that's a very pie you know, in the sky sort of interpretation because no one in the world is going to make policy or give money unless you can say what number of people in the population is actually affected, right? Like if you're a mm -hmm. rational actor, you're going to be like, I need to know exactly how many people are trafficked. I need to know what this trafficking looks like. And I need to know if I'm a politician, are these sad children that I can put in an ad to get, you know, elected with as a position point. And I know that that's super cynical of me. As usual, I think that like 99.9% .9 of the people acting within the, the anti-human trafficking field are acting out of love. Like they are trying mm -hmm. to do the best possible work um, for people who need it. I don't think that there are people just, you know, using slavery victims as a platform. You know, I don't think that's true. But I think that you have to be cynical when you're looking at policy formation because what these policymakers have to do to get their policies passed oftentimes is a very sort of cynical use of human trafficking victims or use of the stats to benefit them. Speaking so as, of stats. Yeah, go ahead. 
Well, we, we've had some conversations directly with law enforcement to be able to ask questions and to say, so, like, I, my impression is sex trafficking is easier to identify. And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah it is. And labor trafficking, you have to do these look at payroll records and contracts if they exist and things like that. And, and so that gets difficult. And in order to arrest and prosecute, there are things you have to do, especially to prosecute. You, If you want to take the case, you want to be reasonably confident that you can close the case. And so that means they will often not use human trafficking legislation or laws when they can have something lesser where they believe they could get a conviction because the burden of proof for human trafficking is higher than some other laws. And if the concern is to get them off the street, they might use uh, something else, fraud. However, and you know, we, we, we applaud that they're getting them off the street, you know, law enforcement has also said, yes, that can skew the statistics. Mm-hmm. And it's great glad criminals who are putting people in the positions of slavery are taken off the street but then we're looking at legislation and we're trying to create uh, laws based on statistics the statistics Uh don't back up the story that there are a number of people in labor trafficking that the statistics don't prove yeah and i think and i think we see this pan out everywhere it's not a u.s problem it's not a bipartisan problem like it's legitimately just like a huge problem worldwide of we need better stats but in order to get better stats we need policy that is built on these inappropriate stats you know and and that's that is the difficulty here is how to how to manage all of that um one one of the things that I think about a lot is that – so January is National Slavery and Human Trafficking Prevention Month. If you didn't know that, that's where we are. Um, and that was declared in 2017 that January was going to be National Slavery and Human Trafficking Prevention Month. Um, and in the press releases that they – that the White House put out, they talked about the number that we've talked about before that um, – over 20 million adults and children are in involved in are are currently held in human trafficking. Um, and while I do talk about the idea of force, fraud, or coercion that we brought up, um, in particular, they put a lot of focus again on brothels and factories. <laughs> you know, um, and again, um, a focus that women and girls are the greater share of forced labor victims. When in fact we know that that women and girls maybe not are not the primary victims, but they are the primary victims who gain services. Again, for that same reason, is that it's just it's easier to find. Um, and so that's kind of the situation that that I think the Obama administration set up is this beautiful sort of situation where we're supposed to be united. And by we, I mean as a nation, as the United States. The United States is supposed to be united to be fighting against human trafficking. We're supposed to be united against realizing that all victims are the same. All survivors should gain access to the same services. Yet, 
at the same time, they have an entire subsection in this press release devoted to how women are branded by pimps. <laughs> which is which is some it's not really a thing. Like it's a thing that gets reported a lot, but it's not really a thing in human trafficking. Um Maybe we'll do a podcast on human trafficking myths 101 where we'll talk about that. But so in the midst of this anti-human trafficking legislation and these great speeches about human trafficking, there is still this fundamental misunderstanding of what human trafficking actually is and how to manage it. And that's the hard part to parse out. Mm-hmm. And maybe when we're talking about sort of hard things to parse out, this is a good moment to talk about the trade facilitation and trade enforcement act mm -hmm. yeah i'm looking at um, it <laughs> yeah that, oh are you it's such a fun document um that was signed in 2015 maybe seth if you kind of want to break down what that is and and what kind of ripples it has so in 1930 the united states passed the tariff act where it would seize shipments that forced labor was suspected to be used and block further imports Unless we really needed it. <laughs> yeah, it's that's that's always that's the teeth part, right? So if there was domestic demand under quote consumptive demand, then we allowed imports and we wouldn't try to stop them. And so we have articles like this one where the uh, for whatever reason we like to give everything that happens under an administration to the president. And if we like the president, we'll we'll do that. If we don't like the president, we'll do that. Mm -hmm. And so Obama <laughs> closed the loophole, the 86-year-old loophole. And there were actually a few seizures under that uh, by the Customs and Border Protection. So in that case, the teeth actually did a little. And, and that's what you see kind of again and again and again when we're dealing with labor trafficking is that it sounds so wonderful. I love it on paper. And then when you actually get there and get to it, it's terrible. It's like a Tinder date. You know, it looks fantastic until you actually like, you know, have to interact with it. And then it's a bad idea. Um, and to kind of jump on with that. It's that looking when you look at like the grant funding that's been given to these things for human trafficking, it's it's. So let's say um, one particular in 2016, the Justice Department gave a 22 million grant to combat human trafficking. And if like us, you're a graduate student, you're like, oh, 22 million is that's life altering. That is that is an island. But when you actually parse it out to be a huge grant that was given to over 16 different organizations to actually provide services, that's 22 million is a drop in a bucket. So they're not putting their money where their rhetoric is. And that is an ongoing problem. Right. And dealing with labor trafficking, which even in the United States is not always just some seedy criminal in a sweatshop. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, you know, it's labor trafficking in the restaurant industry is huge. So it's the people making your food and then bringing your food to you who are a nice, happy waitress who you're tipping. It's the nail tech at your local salon. It is 
the you know the live-in nanny next door it's a lot more insidious and a lot harder to see and to spot and especially because the majority of the victims are adults it's a little bit harder to see you know Mm -hmm. and so in some ways i can actually see why law enforcement focuses on the crime that is easier to find that is less expensive to find the idea being that then you can save and help more victims really quickly Now, speaking of victims, uh, mm-hmm. President Obama started the Advisory Council on Human, Human Trafficking and in 2015 appointed 11 members, and they have since released a report. All of the members are former trafficking victims, or as we would say, survivors. Yes. And as long as uh, survivors are not exploited... Uh, what, what I mean by that is uh, th- there are times where well-meaning people will introduce survivors in a way that is re-traumatizing or where they're kind of using them in a way that's not appropriate. So uh, that has happened. But – but <laughs> uh, when, Yeah, and you see that with yeah. things like tours, mm-hmm. you know, that, that they'll bring survivors on occasionally of, you know – kind of telling telling their trauma or telling their story, which for some survivors is a very empowering thing and very useful, but for a lot of survivors is actually a re-traumatizing, very difficult issue. Um, and so that's kind of what Seth is detailing there, is that, again, sometimes it's good for everybody, but sometimes... Right. Well, not. sensitivity and, and respect. Yeah. It's, it, trauma's involved. However, I am not saying that that's the case here. Uh, so that you had 11 members who who have actually had the experience that can give input on policy and that's great we we need it's the the savior mentality like on one hand yeah we have to have people who have resources and who have knowledge and skills that are helping people but we we also have to understand we we have to understand the issues and the people who've been through it could give advice and give input that might be different, that could be helpful. And so including uh, survivors is really, really important. And so we would applaud the Obama administration for actually involving them. Yeah. And I think that's, that's the thing to remember is that every administration has its kind of pet projects and kind of focuses to move forward but i think what the obama administration did better than perhaps previous administrations is it laid a really good foundation for other for future administrations so they actually created a very good platform for someone like i don't know the current president donald trump um, to build off by like properly funding these initiatives by continuing um, the policies set forth by relooking at how visas are established and you know pushing for more people to be granted them and by kind of making a pivot to focusing on labor trafficking. The Obama administration basically set up sort of a game board that very much could benefit victims of human trafficking and help end global slavery. They just didn't take it far enough. They didn't fund it properly. And based on the past history of under um, 
both Bushes under uh, their focus how well they funded anti-human trafficking legislation, I, you could make a prediction just based off that, that, hey, maybe moving forward, this uh, current Republican president could take the platform laid out by the Obama administration and move forward and, um, and really do a lot of good. I think that the problem here is that um, actually making predictions on Trump's behavior is uh, very difficult at the moment. So I, I don't know. I don't. I don't know what the legacy of the Obama's human trafficking program is going to be because that legacy is so based, like every president's, on what was used before and after. Right, and it involves an entire group of people in the administration who have different focuses, different priorities. So it's never just the president either. Yeah. Exactly. Well, exactly. A hundred percent. Exactly. So. It's a, it's a very – if anything, if there is one takeaway from this podcast for everyone listening besides the fact that Seth and I are awesome, it should be <laughs> that human trafficking for a field that should be extremely straightforward. People in slavery is wrong. We should not have it. You know, like before – like taking beyond that very simple premise is that the actuality of ending it is the ending of abusive human behavior which has carried on since man first, you know, decided who got to sit around the fire. So trying, trying to set these things out is far more complicated than I think most people, lay people would think. Let's talk about the tip report, the annual trafficking in persons report. Ah, sure. Why not? Started in 2001 and since 2001 has come a long way. In fact, under John Kerry, it's a lot more consistent. It includes a lot more labor trafficking, transgender trafficking, consistency, Mm -hmm. and uh, the quality of country-to-country reports have always varied. Uh, Sometimes you will see copy and paste year-to-year for a given country. Uh, Some narratives on a country are better than others. Uh, It's highly dependent on the embassy staff in a country and uh, the, the information that they're able to glean. And it's also the only annual comprehensive report on human trafficking, and that makes it a valuable tool. Yeah. I think I think that's the big thing to remember is that a lot of these things – I think if you do – yeah, I think that's great. Use them – think of them as tools, not sort of ending policies. Just suggested tools. And then there was Malaysia. <laughs> Yeah, Malaysia is one of those things that pops up a lot as like, and there we were. Um, It's kind of, it's a thing Mm -hmm. with M names in countries because it's like slavery is outlawed the world over. And then Mauritania shows up and is like, deal with it. Um, So I think it's dealing with that difference. But yeah, yeah, do you you kind of want to detail the Malaysia issue? So here's the Malaysia issue. Not exclusively Malaysia, but the Malaysia issue. The title of one article is in the New York Times. Obama administration ignores Malaysia's trafficking record. They actually credit the administration there. Mm-hmm. The buck usually stops with the Secretary of State, although the president certainly could give input. And the first few paragraphs. 
After one year in the State Department's list of countries that are failing to combat modern-day slavery, Malaysia has been upgraded to a higher category. They are on a tiers of a one, two, and three, and then there is a tier two watch list in the middle there. To continue reading, that judgment, part of an annual evaluation of how 188 countries deal with human trafficking, strains credulity given how little Malaysia has done to address the problem. The decision has raised suspicions that Malaysia's status was changed to advance the Trans-Pacific Partnership. May it rest in peace. <laughs> A 12-nation deal, not including China, I'll note, although the administration denied that was the case. So you had people in Congress, and you had people in media, and you had Republicans who were decrying the Obama administration for your allowing slavery to happen, and we we have to protect the integrity of the tip report, and this is really important. And we've looked at the tip report a lot at the Human Trafficking Center while we were there, and uh, it's always been a political document. And while I'm fine with the Obama administration getting some flack, the Bush administration deserves just as much flack. Yep. Yeah, I think it's it's not a lot of sort of fighting and, and breakdown um, within systems. I think that's, that's the thing that with a lot of U.S. policies, because of the U.S.'s position kind of as this global hegemon, there's this perception that a lot of what the United States does, even if it's in regards to something um, that's sort of a universal moral that like trafficking shouldn't exist, they get viewed as kind of doing a blame and shame report or trying to do policies that directly attack um, the capabilities or, or the systems or societies that are in these foreign countries. And so I think you have to acknowledge when you're talking about anything, even Obama administration, Trump administration, Bush administration, anything that there is a um a certain sort of implicit that the u.s is going to make these policies and the world is going to follow and that doesn't seem to so much be true anymore the tip report is supposed to be used for sanctions if they go into tier three so since the beginning we've been more likely to put uh, the enemies of the United States, like North Korea is consistent tier three. Mm-hmm. Uh, not that we have great information on what's going on there, but uh, you know, Saudi Arabia has been one of those iffy ones where it's like, well, you know, we kind of need them, but we don't want to penalize them too bad because that oil and stuff. And, and so they've been kind of iffy about putting them in tier three and, and then there's the concern on, on just the tip report end of that. If you do penalize a country, is that just going to make it worse because then the country is not able to come to the table um, because it's been shamed in kind of this internationally read document? So is are you helping or hindering by, say, moving them from a tier two watch list to a kind of tier three, which is the worst you can get? Um, what I always think is interesting about is about the tip report is that the only other country that puts out a comprehensive report currently of all um, countries in the world with their human trafficking rankings is China. Um, and in the Chinese report, the U.S. is not a tier one, you know, best possible scenario. We are we are a tier two, the, the equivalent of a tier two. Um, so it, a lot of this stuff just comes down now to perception. 
of positioning and and positives or negatives. But nevertheless, despite the faults of the tip report and how we use it, it has advanced. It's advanced the cause and there are countries that have done something in order to not be shamed. Uh, again, countries like North Korea, they don't really care, but uh, there are other countries that do. And uh, you know, we'll, we'll take what we can get as long as yeah. the sanctions do not make things worse and make people more likely to be trafficked, which is the other scenario with sanctions. Trying to motivate countries is understandably hard because it's it's uh, the international foreign policy world and, and uh, we have sovereign countries and they should have some choice in what they do. But if people are going to allow a lot of abuse or be the abusers, as is the case sometimes, mm -hmm. it's that delicate balance of saying, well, maybe this isn't in your interest, country. It's uh, it's just it's a hot mess. It's that's where we are at the moment, unfortunately. Um, that the sort of legacy set down by the Obama administration is going to be that again the rhetoric was great and it was laid down, but it, it lacked the teeth to move forward. So how do, how do we even begin to rate the Obama administration? They continued the work. They made some yep. tweaks. Uh, there were, as we said, a number of soft announcements and uh, a few things like the Tariff Act and the executive order that, you know, in the case of the executive order, might be useful in the future if it stays uh, in effect. And then the Tariff Act, which has been used a few times. So there are a few tools. Yeah, I would, if we're going to do like a tier one, tier two, or tier three for just the Obama administration, I would give them a tier, a tier two. You know, they they improved upon policies that were pre-existing that were laid out by the Bush administration. They didn't fund like they should have or that I would have liked them to, but they get a lot of bonus points for me for their inclusivity. So starting mm -hmm. to publicly acknowledge um, that men can be victims of tra trafficking, that the LGBTQ community is overwhelmingly a vulnerable population that is trafficked and that is rarely recognized, uh, that labor trafficking uh, is real beyond child sweatshop workers. So they didn't take it super far, but just that acknowledgement is kind of a radical act. And so that's why they get a two for me. I would love for the U.S. to eventually get bo like bumped up to a one. It would, it would be amazing. I would love to see these policies continued. Um, and properly funded. I just don't know if that's going to happen. I'm trying to, as much as humanly possible, stay positive in this time. I, I personally appreciate that uh, Obama acknowledged different aspects of slavery and Jim Crow. Yeah, yeah. Hey. I think what was interesting is that you know, that there there was a relation with the Obama administration, the fact that we had a black American as president for the first time. So we have to acknowledge, and I think to not acknowledge the fact that, um, that the policies that were laid down by Obama as a president, as a black American, based on the history of slavery and oppression that has followed African Americans, I think you can't 
that there was there was a weight to sort of the policies that the Obama administration started to lay down, fair or not, that this perception that um, Obama and his and his focus on kind of um, inclusivity too of like races with within um, sort of the the Washington the, like Washington D.C. elite that his that his actions were going to be viewed as relating to slavery as being more weighted than say George W. Bush's reactions to slavery as a wealthy white man in America. You know, and I don't know necessarily if that's fair or not. I don't know if it's fair to say that Obama's administration should have been stronger on slavery because he was a black president um, or not. I don't I don't think that that's really a determination that needed to be made, particularly by, let's say, like white America, you know, mm-hmm. but um, I do think it's very interesting that finally under Obama's administration, we finally have this acknowledgement of the continuation of slavery via Jim Crow laws, but also view, you know, mass incarceration, um, particularly of young black men in the United States in the role of poverty and wealth distribution and perpetuating racial, you know, inequalities in the United States. So I think that when we see this inclusivity happening under the Obama administration, on one hand, you can go, oh, of course, of course, the Obama administration would be more open to actually discussing the realities of slavery than previous administrations. But I also think that maybe that's not fair. It's not really fair to decide that the Obama administration had to be this fair and this open because, you know, we, he just happened to be a president who's black. And we realize in bringing up this issue now that there, there's various opinions and uh, about whether he united or divided, whether race was – whether he handled it right, whether he handled law enforcement right, especially in the inner cities, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera. So as somebody who's slowly understood more about Jim Crow and everything, just hearing President Obama acknowledge Jim Crow and aspects of slavery in a very direct way was refreshing and relieving and I think necessary because as uh, one of my friends said in a previous episode, you know, that slavery was this abstract bad thing that happened to black people and then for some reason there was a civil rights movement later on and you know whatever that was about and yeah we got some good things but then you know i realized there was jim crow and there's there's a complicated history and there are things we need to talk about and i i'm glad that uh, president obama said some things and you know i hope we can find a way to find, move forward. Move forward and find a middle with topics of race and actually be able to dialogue about them. Yeah. And you know, it's I think I think positivity can can only help in this particular moment. Do you know what I mean? So um, and as we will have in our podcast next week, where we're kind of detailing the ideas of what are possibilities of the Trump administration moving forward with human trafficking, you'll see that, again, I think right away we're seeing now that there are going to be indirect 
that there that policies that don't seem necessarily like they are human trafficking related are going to have an immediate impact on human trafficking. And that's all I got. <laughs> I'm sad now. <laughs> now we need to prepare. Yeah. Give you as in, an informed perspective as we can by actually having as much text of executive orders and legislation as we can and yeah. give our best evaluation of what we think the impacts could be in as nonpartisan a way as we can. You know, I don't desire to focus on personality and people. You know, I want to focus as much as possible on policy and try to help the most vulnerable yeah and if and if you are one of these people who are concerned about the way things are going now or this podcast has inspired you to get out and fight human trafficking i suggest that you look into local human trafficking organizations um so just kind of start googling local human trafficking organizations to your area um we'll put a link down um for a few different organizations that are uh, more national that might be interesting to you, but like always look for your local organizations because those are the ones who are generally relying more on private funding. Um, and so if you feel like giving your time or your money, those donations will have a lot more punch at kind of a local level. Yeah. And just to continue finishing up on that, there were good things in the Obama administration and there's things that weren't as great, but we need to build on what's good we, we need to look forward and find hope and have narratives that give us hope and do what we can. And, and, and if that means you, you just go and find, find a way locally or you, or you talk to your neighbor or you find somebody of a different culture and learn about their culture, that you do what you can. And life is ultimately, as far as I'm concerned, about relationships. Yep, it is. It is entirely about that, and the idea. Um, what I always, always come back to um, is the fantastic Kurt Vonnegut quote of just, um, "God damn it, babies, you've got to be kind." You know, just just be good to each other out there in the world. So, and with that, uh, we uh, we'll talk to you next week. But yep, uh, we. We leave you with your thoughts, your concerns. As always, please drop us a line if you have a topic you'd like us to cover, if you have any questions or comments on what we've covered here today. So thanks for listening. Stay strong. Stay involved. Bye. Bye. This has been Speaker for the Living. For extended notes and sources, visit our website at speakerfortheliving.com.